0: To Hebrews 11, while I switch microphones, we're going to be in verse 17. How about now? It's like public speaking isn't isn't stressful. Next, if my iPad stops working, then we're going to be, it'll really be a part of Okay, so again, uh, Hebrews um, chapter 11, verse 17, that's where we're starting. Um, but but I want to start us off with just a short story. So, um, several years ago, my family and I, we lived in the National Capital Region. Uh, my last duty station in the military was in Quantico, Virginia. And we uh, can't live that close to Washington DC about 20 miles from Washington DC. We can't live that close to Washington DC without making it a point to make a trip Obviously to the nation's capital So um, we decided to take the kids. We only had Gracie and Winnie at the time. They we were both younger and we decided to load them up in my big old diesel pickup truck and Go to Washington DC to visit now if you've ever been to the National Capital Region You know that making a trip is a big big chore Um, The traffic is so bad that it can take three and a half, maybe even four hours just to get into the city sometimes, depending on when you go. Um, And and that's even though it's only 20 miles. And this is an eight-lane superhighway, and yet the traffic is still that bad. And actually, a lot of people who work in the city don't actually come home during the week because the traffic is so bad. They'll just stay in the city, and then on the weekends they'll come home um, just to visit their families a little bit on the weekends. So, so here I am, sitting in my truck, the uh, annoyed that I let Corey talk me into this, especially because I'm literally sitting in my truck on I-95. We're not moving. We're parked in a traffic jam. The traffic is so backed up, and there's so few exits between the different stops along the way that it, it isn't uncommon to see people hopping out of their cars because they have to go to the bathroom, and they, and they do it in immediately of the highway. The kids are in the back, they're complaining about the trip, they're hungry, they're bored, they're restless, and Corey is just sleeping so peacefully. <laughs> and now I'm thinking, this is a really huge waste of my time. What can possibly be so interesting about a bunch of old buildings and statues dedicated to men long since dead? I convinced myself that it will be educational for the kids, so I should try and make it through. Finally, we arrived. And now I'm realizing that I have to try to park my giant diesel pickup truck in one of the busiest cities in the entire nation. So finally, after finding a parking spot, probably a 30-minute walk from the first monument that we want to go visit, we finally stop, we unload the kids, and now I realize that it's hot. Maybe it's not northern Louisiana in August hot, but it's hot enough to know this is going to be a rough day for the kids. And now it's also going to be a rough day for me. And I'm really not looking forward to this. So I start pushing the stroller as fast as I can towards the Lincoln Memorial, praying to myself that maybe Cory will think this one monument is good enough and that we can just fall afterwards. But that's when I see it. Perched atop a mountain of stairs, like an ancient Roman temple, marble pillars rising up from the ground like beams of bright white light. To my right is the reflecting pool, gently flowing in the breeze, It's the Lincoln Memorial, and it's enormous. I mean, I knew it would be big, because I've seen the pictures of Martin Luther King standing and talking to what seems like an endless ocean of people from the steps of the monument. That's where he delivered his famous, I Have a Dream speech. You can actually see imported Japanese cherry blossom trees. They have pink flowers. They bloom at this time of year during the cherry blossom festival. They're the most beautiful trees that I've ever seen. And then far off in the distance beyond the pool, you can see the Washington Monument pointing like an arrow up to heaven. The massiveness and the impressiveness of these monuments is accentuated by the little people just walking, riding bikes, ducks, swimming in the reflecting pool. My breath is taken away. We continue through the memorial gardens to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. An obsidian black wall that's carved with more than 58,000 names of people who lost their lives or whose bodies have never been recovered during the Vietnam War. It's extremely somber. I find myself standing numbly as I see old men sitting in wheelchairs by the names of their buddies. Some of them speaking quietly, others weeping softly. Some of them just sitting there silently. We walk through to the Korean War Veterans Memorial. Bronze statues of men have been made to appear as though they're walking on patrol, covered in thick winter coats. The looks on their faces are eerie, and even a little scary. I've now completely forgotten about the heat and the fussing children. Before this day, I knew that the memorials held an important historical significance to this nation. But now they're gripping me, and they're bringing me face to face With the enormity of the deeds of many women who've shaped my personal history, I now understand the importance of memorials. They're not just for teaching history abstractly, but for showing us the significance and the impact the actions of heroes have had on our personal history, and hopefully teach us to end them. And this leads me to our scripture for today. Before we begin, let me pray. Father, we worship you for your incredible power. We thank you that you've chosen to give us the gift of faith that empowers us to live lives that are pleasing to you. Thank you for your word and for the people who have gone before us and how you've used them mightily to accomplish your purposes, despite all their flaws. We offer ourselves to you today and ask that you use us to advance your kingdom, and your honor. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is God's Word. Today's passage picks up where Jesse left off last week describing the faith of some of the most famous people in recorded history. The author of Hebrews recounts the Old Testament description of Abel, who said to have pleased God by offering a more acceptable sacrifice in his brother Cain. The author also describes how Enoch is said to have pleased God before being caught up to heaven while still living. The author goes on to reason that Enoch must have had great faith, because it's impossible to please God without believing him. He goes on to recount the reverent fear of Noah and how through that faith Noah built the ark and saved his family. He describes the faith of Abraham through the story of Abraham leaving his family and traveling to the land of promise, not knowing where he was going and the faith of Sarah that empowered her to conceive in her old age and to give birth to the son through whom God would fulfill his promise to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the sands of the sea trail. This section of Hebrews is sometimes referred to as the Hall of Faith because it highlights the amazing faith of some of the most impactful people in human history. That phrase, Hall of Faith, is what reminded me of the monuments in Washington, D.C., and reminded me of that story. You'll notice that it isn't called the Vietnam War Memorial. It's the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, and the Lincoln Memorial, and the Washington Monument. These monuments are named after people, not events, because people and their actions are what is being remembered. Similarly, this section of Scripture reminds us of the amazing faith of those who've gone before us, a faith we should strive to emulate in our own lives. This passage of scripture is also helpful to us in that it really helps to define exactly what faith is. First, it involves believing in the existence of God. Not simply any God, but in the one who made his will known to the fathers through the prophets, and who in these last days has spoken to the Son. Second, faith entails believing that God rewards those who are honestly seek him, that he will keep his future promises. So if the previous verses leading up to today's scripture highlights of amazing acts of faith, I'd offer that the stories told in today's scripture are even more incredible. Let's start by looking at verses 17 and 18. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This passage in Genesis chapter 22 has traditionally been called the binding of Isaac among the Jews. And in Jewish interpretation is the classic example of the redemptive power of martyrdom. This passage is also an amazing example of active faith as described by James in his book towards the end of the Bible. Abraham's actions were evidence of incredible faith. Here God tests Abraham with what may be the greatest trial possible. God commands Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice to him. The very Isaac whom God had previously promised would be the progenitor of the entire nation of Israel with descendants as numerous as the stars. Contrasting this with the acts of faith attributed to Abraham earlier in the chapter, he left his home, he didn't know where he was going, he lived in a foreign land and lived in tents. That's not to discount the faith that Abraham had to do those things, I know that a lot of you here are transplants from other places, us included. I don't think it counts as living in a foreign land to move to Monroe, but getting up and leaving your home can be very hard and very stressful for your family. I'm not sure how many of you have ever lived in tents for any long period of time, I've done it. It's definitely a shock when you're used to living in a home with the comforts. But I think that if we're honest, leaving home, moving to a foreign land, living in tents, These can't compare to sacrificing your child, particularly if that child has received a promise from God that will carry on your legacy far into the future and ultimately bless the entire world. This is a huge sacrifice to ask Abraham to make. I can't even imagine. When I was writing this, I'm, I'm standing here and I was thinking about trying to imagine doing this, and I just, I can't. It, it's so foreign. It's so, so, it's just, I can't even imagine. And we may even be sitting here asking ourselves and feeling really uncomfortable with the idea of God testing us. Are we misunderstanding what scripture is teaching here? Does God really test us according to what it says in the Bible? In Psalm 26, verse 2, and in 139, verse 23, David seeks God's test asking God to examine his heart and mind and to see if they were true. The account of Job is a perfect example of God allowing one of his saints to be tested by the devil. Job bore all his trials patiently, and he, quote, did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. That's Job 1.22. In the parable of the sower, Jesus himself identifies the ones who fall away as those who receive the seed of God's word with joy, but as soon as a time of testing comes up, they fall away. James says that the testing of our faith develops perseverance, which leads to maturity in our walk with God. That's James one, verses three through four. He goes on to say that testing is a blessing, because when the testing is over and we have, quote, stood the test, we will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. James one twelve. So Scripture is very clear that God does in fact test us. And if that makes you uncomfortable, then I would suggest you consider what Paul says in Romans eight twenty eight that our Heavenly Father works all things together for the good for those who love Him and for who are called according to His purpose. So if we truly believe that God is good and that He works all things together for the good of His chosen people, then we should not feel uncomfortable with the idea of us of trials, and tribulations. It's interesting that when you read the Genesis narrative, In the Hebrews' description of the event, neither passage really spends a whole lot of time describing any sort of like inner turmoil with Abraham. In fact, the impression that you get is that Abraham regarded it as God's problem to deal with. In Romans chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, Paul says it was for God and not for Abraham to reconcile his promise and his command. So unlike me, who can't even imagine how horrible this would be, Abraham doesn't even appear to be shaken at all. How can this possibly be? If you've read the story of Abraham, which I'm hoping that all of you have, then how can this be the same Abraham who when a famine arrived and he was in the promised land, fled for the safety of Egypt, even though God had promised that he would make him a great nation in the promised land? This is the same Abraham who lied to Pharaoh and to King Abimelech and said that Sarah, his wife, was his sister because he was afraid that they would kill him and take her as, as, as the wife, as their wife, even though he had been promised that his line would continue. And then Abraham, who even even though God had promised that Sarah would bear him a son, Abraham and Sarah became impatient They can't wait. And so they end up trying to make the promise happen. And Abraham has Ishmael with Hagar, Sarah's servant. So, this same Abraham, whose faith seemed to be so weak, is now instantly obeying an impossibly hard command from God and doing so without hesitation or complaint. Incredible. How in the world is Abraham able to do this? In verse 18, we see that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So, this confidence in God is yet another example that the author of Hebrews uses to further explain what is meant. In verse 1 of our chapter In chapter Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for The conviction of things Not seen. So Abraham was assured that God would fulfill his promises This is clear from the Genesis text Where Abraham tells his servants that he and Isaac will return to them That's in Genesis chapter 22 verse 5 Then Abraham said to his young men Stay here with the donkey, and the boy will go over there. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and come to you, come again to you. So Abraham fully intended to sacrifice Isaac, and yet, he also knew that he would be returning with Isaac. So this is why Abraham's faith is so monumental, and why he has been called the greatest example of faith in the Old Testament. He had an unflinching faith in the things he hoped for. He was convinced that God would fulfill his promises to him. He had conviction in the as yet unseen promises of God. Now, as if after all of that we need even any more convincing or more examples, the author of Hebrews goes on to offer several more examples of monumental faith through verses 19 and 22 in the stories of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. In Hebrews 11, chapter 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. So Isaac is the son who was sacrificed by Abraham and stopped from actually going through with it by God. Isaac was the son of promise of Abraham. And Isaac also received the promise from God, very similar to the promise made to Abraham, that his descendants would be blessed and that they would inhabit the land of promise. But we see Isaac also dealing with some struggles of faith in his life, very similar to Abraham. When Isaac settles temporarily in Gerar, he convinces Rebekah to lie and say she is his sister because he's afraid of getting killed because of her beauty. That's in Genesis chapter 26, verse 7. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. And later at the end of his life, even though God had already said that the older will serve the younger, speaking of Esau relative to his brother Isaac, Esau being the older brother, Isaac being the, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Jacob uh, Jacob being the younger brother, Isaac still struggles with custom. He attempts to give the best blessing to his firstborn son, to Esau, instead of to Jacob. Again, you can read the entire account of this in, in Genesis chapter 27. And I I would recommend that you you do so Suffice to say Isaac attempts to bless Esau In a way that would have contradicted The promises of God Specifically you can can read In verses 26-29 through Remembering in this moment Isaac thinks he's blessing Esau So starting in verse 26 Of Genesis chapter 27 Then his father Isaac said to him Come here and kiss me my son So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. If you don't remember, this is because Jacob had cut off the skin of a goat and had put on Esau's clothing and was wearing goat skins on his arms. That's why he smelled like Esau. Verse 28, May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth Plenty of grain and wine Let peoples serve you And nations bow down to you Be Lord over your brothers And may your mother's sons Bow down to you Cursed be everyone who curses you And blessed be everyone who blesses you So even though Isaac had attempted to give What God had already said Would be Jacob's blessing to Esau God's purposes are not thwarted by our plans So the blessing above, which Isaac had intended for Esau, was given to Jacob because Jacob had conspired with his mother to take that blessing. Then when Isaac learns that the intended blessing that he meant to give to Esau was given to Jacob, he's upset, but he still understands with full conviction that God's promises are God's promises and they will be fulfilled. In Genesis chapter 27, verse 33, Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. It's important here to know that the author of Hebrews doesn't discuss much of the details of the deception of Isaac, or even really give the contents of the blessing. The contents of the blessing are only given in Genesis, they're not in Hebrews. So, So this letter, it's important to remember, was written to Hebrew people, so they would have been very, very familiar with these stories. Instead, the author chooses to focus on Isaac's faith in the future blessing. Moving on to Jacob, Hebrews chapter eleven, verse twenty-one. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship under the head of his staff. This verse is a brief retelling of Genesis chapter forty-eight, verses one through twenty-two. It's interesting to note that the author of Hebrews chooses the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh to highlight the faith of Jacob rather than the blessings of all the other patriarchs that are recorded in the very next chapter, chapter 49. It isn't really clear why the author chose this particular blessing as the example as opposed to the blessing of the other patriarchs. But here are some interesting facts about it. Ephraim and Manasseh weren't Jacob's actual sons. They were Joseph's sons. And in the blessing... Jacob chose to bestow the greater blessing on Ephraim, the younger, rather than Manasseh, the older. This is very similar to the way that Isaac had blessed him over Esau. And this was also in spite of the protest of Joseph. In Genesis chapter 48, verses 17 through 19, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father. Since this one is your is the firstborn Put your right hand on his head But his father refused and said I know my son, I know He also shall become a people And he also shall be great Nevertheless, his younger brother Shall be greater than he And his offspring shall become a multitude of nations So here again we see Jacob Despite his checkered past Of conspiring to steal his father's blessing In the end exemplifies an active faith that is assured of things hoped for, of the promises of the future, even though the circumstances seem odd and outside of custom, taking his grandsons as his sons and blessing the younger over the older, Jacob has full confidence in God's ability to desire to fulfill his promises to him. And again, the author of Hebrews chooses this story to reinforce his message of faith, hoping for the fulfillment of those future promises. Finally, in verse 22, we see Joseph as our next example of monumental faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. The life of Joseph is an incredible story. It takes up a large part of the book of Genesis. And again, I would highly encourage you to reread the story of Joseph in your personal study time. But by way of study, Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He was hated by all of his brothers because of how much Jacob loved him. Remember, he made him a special multicolored coat. So all his brothers conspired to kill him. He he survived. He was enslaved, and he was ultimately sold into service of a high-ranking Egyptian man named Potiphar. After some very dramatic events in the household of Potiphar, Joseph finds himself in prison. And then again freed from prison in order to help Pharaoh. This helping a pharaoh elevates Joseph to the position of prime minister in Egypt, and through Joseph's leadership, Egypt is saved from famine, and many of the nations around Egypt as well, saved from famine. And ultimately, in the end, he's reunited and reconciled to his brothers and his father. And now we see him on his very deathbed, full of faith, he's prophesying the exodus from Egypt, even going so far as to ensure that his bones would not be left there. As commentator Matthew Henry puts it though he had lived and died in Egypt yet he did not live and die an Egyptian but an Israelite he preferred a significant burial in Canaan to a magnificent burial in Egypt Joseph had such confidence in the promises of God for the future that he refused the incredible honor that he was due as Prime Minister of Egypt and again despite All of the incredible stories of faith from the life of Joseph, the author of Hebrews, chose this particular story to reinforce his point that faith is the confidence that God will fulfill his promises for the future. So, what should we take away from these few and yet incredibly rich verses of scripture? The first point for you to remember is that God empowers imperfect people with monumental faith. We know from our study of the Old Testament that none of the people called out today were perfect. As I said before, Abraham struggled with fear of death at the hands of Abimelech, tried to force God's promises by having a son of Hagar. Isaac attempted to change the plan of God, attempting to bless his firstborn son Esau over Jacob, despite God's explicit plan. Jacob conspired with his mother to steal his birthright the birthright and the blessing of Esau, his own brother. Joseph struggled with pride through his youth and arrogance and had to be humbled before he could be used by God. And yet, these four people are highlighted as having monumental faith by the author of Hebrews. Contrast this with how we treat our heroes today. I mentioned my visit to the National Mall and the Memorial Gardens in Washington, D.C., described the breathtaking Lincoln Memorial and the Washington Monument, among others. Were these men perfect? Of course not. But for some reason, we treat them as perfect. I remember as a kid hearing the story that Washington, when he was a six-year-old boy, refused to lie to his father about chopping down a cherry tree, proclaiming that he could not tell a lie. Why do we insist on elevating the heroes of history to these demigod statuses? It makes them almost impossible to believe in, because no one is perfect, and we all know that. One of the reasons given throughout history that you can trust what the Bible teaches is the way that it treats its heroes. In almost every case, the heroes of Scripture have some very serious character flaws. But faith in God and obedience to his commands transforms them into the heroes they become. It's in this way that God himself becomes the hero, not the people. We can still seek to imitate their faithfulness, but we cannot idolize them and make them the focus of our praise and worship. And this should also make us extremely glad because if God can transform people like this into titans of faith, then he can certainly do so for us as well. So I would ask you, can you remember a time where God transformed you to where you didn't believe in God And now you do. To where you didn't have an assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things unseen. But now you do. Maybe your faith isn't as dramatic as Abraham's faith. But can you genuinely in your heart say with confidence that you believe in God and you trust him that he will fulfill his promises? If not, then please hear my warning. Without faith you cannot please God. Without faith, there cannot be any forgiveness of sins. So please don't delay. Right here and right now, ask God to have him give you the faith to believe in him and trust his promises. And, And I would ask that if you do that, that you would stick around today and find one of our elders to talk to so that they can help you continue along this walk of faith. Now, for those of you that can say, yes, I do have this faith, I do believe in God and trust His promises. Then my next point is that God tests our faith for good purposes. As I said earlier, Scripture is very clear that God tests us. And for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes, this is a very good thing. As the more we are tested, the stronger our faith grows. There are many examples in scripture of the positive results of being tested. The psalmist likens our testing to being refined like silver, Psalm 66.10. Peter speaks of our faith as of greater worth than gold. And that's why we suffer grief in all kinds of trials, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In testing our faith, God causes us to grow into strong disciples who truly live by faith and not by what we see, 2 Corinthians 5.7. When we experience the storms of life, we should be like a tree that digs its roots even more deeply for a greater grip in the earth. We should be digging our roots deeper into God's word and cling to his promises so that we can weather the storms of come. Most comforting of all, we know that God will never allow us to be tested beyond what we are able to handle because he gives us the power to do so. His grace is sufficient for us, and His power is made perfect in our weakness, 2 Corinthians 12.9. That's why, Paul said, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Lastly, God preserves true faith to the end. I mentioned above how the author of Hebrews uses some very specific examples from the lives of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and gave several reasons why he may have done so. However, what I didn't mention explicitly, but something I think is important to also notice, that in the examples of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, it all took place at the very end of their lives. How many times have we seen people who have apparently been paragons of the faith fall away at the end of their lives? I'm not going to mention any names because I'm sure right now in your head you're already filling in the gaps. Suffice to say, we see it over and over again. Scripture is very clear that if you are truly a believer, your faith will persevere to the end. This sounds scary at first, at least to me. How in the world will I make sure that my faith perseveres to the end? I can't even go one day without sinning, either openly or in my heart. So what do I do? I I discipline myself. I put controls in place, tighter and tighter restrictions on what I do. The tighter the reins I hold, this will keep me from stumbling and losing my faith, right? Except for that it doesn't work. In my current state and in our current state, there's nothing we can do to preserve our faith to the very end. Our hearts are too prone to wander on their own. Now what I'm not saying here is that we shouldn't discipline our bodies and minds. Nor does it mean that we should throw caution to the wind and expose ourselves to all sorts of temptations so that grace may abound. Even just a very quick cursory skimming of the Bible will reinforce that point over and over again. What I'm saying here is that we can't do this through discipline and rules alone. What hope do we have? Philippians chapter one, verse six. And I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul describes the good news of the preserving power of God here by making three points. First, Paul reminds us that since God has begun our salvation, we can rely on him to complete it. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God always finishes what he starts, especially the salvation of his people. Second, Paul says that God, having begun his work in our lives, will bring it to completion. This indicates that God not only guarantees the completion of our salvation, but he is the one who is actively involved in the believer's life to bring it to pass. God works sovereignly in our lives in the way a craftsman works to finish a product he has created. He smooths out the lines, sands the rough places, and puts its pieces together in proper proportion. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, God does not merely initiate the work and then leave it. He continues with it. He leads us on, directing and manipulating our circumstances, restraining us at one time and urging us on at another. Paul's whole conception of the church is that it is a place where God is working in the hearts of men and women. Third, we can see in Philippians 1:6 our certainty of successful completion if God's serving work truly has begun in us. Far from dreading the future as we must if we look for signs of hope within ourselves, every believer possesses a hope that is certain for the most joyful, glorious, and holy destiny through faith in Jesus. If you've not read Pilgrim's Progress, I recommend that you do so. It's an incredible book. And if I remember correctly, I think it's actually the second most popular book in all of history behind the Bible itself. And in the Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan paints a portrait of the eternity God has secured for every believer. Speaking of the believer's entry into heaven, he writes, I saw in my dream the two men enter the gate. As they did, they were transfigured. They had garments that shined like gold. Harps and crowns were given them. The harps for praise and the crowns for honor. Then I heard in my dream all the bells in the city rang again for joy. It was said to them, enter into the joy of your Lord. So if you can't sit here today and say with confidence that you believe in God and you trust his promises for the future. Again, I warn you, there can be no salvation apart from faith in God. But if you can truly say, "I believe in God and I trust in His faith," for the, I trust in His promises for the future, then you can take heart in knowing that that faith will be preserved, it will be grown, it will be tested, and ultimately, in the end, God will bring you into His presence. Father, I worship you for your incredible power that you have given. the people that you have chosen. And Lord, again, I just pray, as I've already said a couple of times, that if there is someone here who does not confidently believe in you and in your promises, Lord, I just pray that you would soften their hearts, that you would bring them to you this morning, Father. For those of us who have, for those of us who are your children, Father, I just pray that you would test us, that you would grow us, grow our faith, Lord. Help us to live lives of impact in your kingdom, like these titans of old. Lord, I pray for that type of faith. I pray for a faith like Abraham, a faith that's unflinching in the face of impossible testing. I pray that for everyone here. In Jesus' name.